Black Clock Audio Tales, May 2019, Hawaiian Folklore and Legends, edited by Daniel Spitzer, music by Kevin McLeod. Help the show by sharing, rating, liking, or five-star giving wherever you listen to a rate podcasts. Support the show by hitting the patron button on pgttcm.podbean.com or by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm. And don't forget to visit pgttcm.com. Brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Check out their new Dino Sound Slippers. Is that the name? They roar every third step. Very cool. Kalea, the surf rider of Maui. Characters. Kawao, king of Maui. Kalea, sister of Kawao. Piliwali, ali'i mui of Oahu. Paakanalea, wife of Piliwali. Lolali, brother of Piliwali. Kalamakua, a chief of Iwa, cousin of Lolali. Kalea, the surf rider of Maui. The legend of Lolali, the eccentric prince of Oahu. 1. Kalea, of whom in the past the bards of Oahu and Maui loved to sing, was the beautiful but capricious daughter of Kawao, king of Maui who in about A.D. 1445, at the age of 25, succeeded to the sovereignty of that island. Their royal father was Kahakili I, the son of Kake, who, with his brother Kakalaneo, was the joint ruler of the Little Realm from about 1380 to 1415. Kake was the rightful heir to the Moiship, and as such, his son Kahakili succeeded him. But as an accident in his youth had somewhat impaired his mental faculties, Kakalaneo became, through the express will of the dying Kamaluhua, the joint ruler and virtual sovereign of the kingdom. He had sons and daughters of his own, but he loved his weak-minded brother and respected the line of legitimate succession. And when the black kappa covered him, Kahakili became king of Maui and Lanai. For during that period, the latter island was under the protection of the Mois of Maui, while Molokai still maintained its independence. Kakalaneo was noted for his business energy and strict sense of justice. The court of the brothers was established at Lahaina, then known as Lele, and was one of the most respected in all the group. It was Kakalaneo who introduced the breadfruit there from Hawaii and won the love of the people by continuous acts of mercy and benevolence. For some disrespect shown to his royal brother, whose mental weakness doubtless subjected him to unkind remarks, he banished his own son, Kalualaau, to Lanai, which island, tradition averse, was at that time infested by powerful and malignant spirits. They killed pigs and fowls, uprooted coconut trees, and blighted taro patches, and a gigantic and mischievous gnome amused himself by gliding like a huge mole under the huts of his victims and almost upsetting them. The priests tried in vain to quiet these malicious spirits. No sooner were they exercised away from one locality than they appeared in another, and if they gave the taro patches a rest, it was only to tear the unripe bananas from their stems, or rend the walls and embankments of artificial ponds, that their stores of fishes might escape to the sea. Aware of these grievances, Kaululaau took with him to Lanai a talisman of rare powers. It was the gift of his friend, the high priest of his father, and consisted of a spear point that had been dipped in the waters of Po, the land of death, and many generations before left by Lono on one of his altars. 
Crowning a long spear with this sacred point, Ka'ululaau attacked the disturbing spirits and in a short time succeeded either in bringing them to submission or driving them from the island. The gnome, Mualeo, was the most difficult to vanish. It avoided the prince and for some time managed to keep beyond the influence of the charmed spear point, but the monster was finally caught within the boundaries of a circular line scratched with the talisman upon the surface of the earth beneath which it was burrowing, and thereby brought to terms. It could not pass the line, no matter how far below the surface it essayed to do so. Heaving the earth in its strength and wrath, it chafed against the charmed restraint that held it captive, and finally plunged downward within the vertical walls of its prison. But there was no path of escape in that direction. It soon encountered a lake of fire and was compelled to return to the surface, where it humbled itself before the prince and promised, if liberated, to quit the island forever. Ka'ululu'au obliterated sixty paces of the line of imprisonment to enable Mualeo to pass to the sea, into which the hideous being plunged and disappeared, never to be seen again in Lanai. In consideration of the great service of the exiled prince in restoring quiet and security to the island, his father permitted him to return to Maui, where he connected himself with the priesthood and became noted for his supernatural powers. The charmed spear point is referred to in later legends and is thought to be still secreted with the bones of a high priest in a mountain cave on the island of Maui, not far from the sacred burial place of Iao. But we have been straying two generations back of our story. The legendary accounts of the ruling families of the principal islands of the group are so threaded with romantic or fabulous incidents that in referring to any of the prominent actors in the past, it is difficult to restrain the pen in its willingness to wander into the enchanted byways in which the meles of the period abound. Having alluded to the immediate ancestors of Kalea, the sister of the young Moy of Maui, we will now resume the thread of our legend by referring somewhat more particularly to the princess herself. Brought up in the royal court at Lahaina, with a brother only to divide the affections of her father, Kalea was humored, petted, and spoiled as a child, and courted and flattered beyond measure as she grew to womanhood. The Malays describe her as a maiden of uncommon beauty, but she was wayward, volatile, and capricious, as might have been expected of one so schooled and favored, and no consideration of policy or persuasion of passion could move her to accept any one of the many high chiefs who sought her in marriage. She loved the water possibly because she could see her fair face mirrored in it, and became the most graceful and daring surf swimmer in the kingdom. Frequently, when the waters of Awuo Channel surged wildly under the breadth of the south wind, or Kona, Kalea, laughing at the fears of her brother, would plunge into the sea with her onini, or surfboard, and so audaciously ride the waves that those who watched and applauded her were half inclined to believe that she was the friend of some water god and could not be drowned. No sport was to her so enticing as a battle with the waves, and when her brother spoke to her of marriage, she gaily answered that the surfboard was her husband, and she would never embrace any other. The brother frowned at the answer, for he had hoped, by uniting his sister to the principal chief of Hana, to more thoroughly incorporate in his kingdom that portion of the island, then ruled by independent chiefs. But by other means, during his reign, it may be remarked, the union of the two divisions was effected. Do not frown, Kaweo, said Kalea coaxingly. A smile better becomes your handsome face. I may marry some day just to please you, but remember what the voice said in the Anu at the Feast of Lono. Yes, I remember, replied Kawao, but I have sometimes believed that when the Kilo declared that in riding the surf Kalea would find a husband, he was simply repeating an augury imparted to him by Kalea herself.
You will anger the gods by speaking so lightly of their words, returned Kalea reproachfully. And Kawao smiled as the princess took her leave with a dignity quite unusual with her. Kawao loved his sister and was proud of her beauty, and while he was anxious to see her suitably married, and felt no little annoyance at the impunities of her suitors, he nevertheless recognized her right, as the daughter of a king, to a voice in the selection of a husband. But the voice from the Anu was prophetic, whatever may have inspired it, for while Kalea continued to ride the waves at Lahani, a husband of the family of Kalona Iki of Oahu was in search of her, and to that island we now request the reader to follow us. There lived at that time at Lahui, in the district of Iwa, on the island of Oahu, a chief named Lolali, son of Kalona Iki, and brother of Pilawali, the Ali'i Numui, or nominal sovereign of the island, whose court was established at Waialua. Kalona Iki had married Kikanui, and thus infused into the royal family the native and aristocratic blood of Maweke, of the ancient line of Nanaula. Lolali was an amiable and handsome prince, but for some cause had reached the age of thirty-five without marrying. The reason was traced to the death by drowning some years before of a chiefess of great beauty, whom he was about to marry, and to whom he was greatly attached. As he was of a gentle and poetic nature, his disinclination to marry may not be unreasonably attributed to that event, especially when supported by the relation that thereafter he abhorred the sea, and was content to remain at Lahui beyond the sound of its ceaseless surges. Pillowali had passed his fiftieth year, and having but two daughters and no son, was more than ever desirous that his brother should marry, that the family authority might be strengthened, and the line of Kalona perpetuated. And the friendly neighboring chiefs were equally anxious that Lolali should become the head of a family, and to inspire him with a disposition to marry, described with enthusiasm the beauty of many maidens of distinguished rank whom they had met on the other islands of the group. To these importunities Lolali finally yielded, and as a suitable wife for so high a chief could not be found on Oahu, or at least one who would be personally acceptable to him, it was necessary to seek for her among the royal families of the other islands. Accordingly, a large koa canoe was fitted out at Waialua, and with trusty messengers of rank dispatched to the Windward Islands in search of a wife for Lolali. The messengers were instructed to quietly visit the several royal courts and report upon the beauty, rank, and eligibility of such marriageable chiefesses in distinguished families as they might be able to discover. Among the chiefs selected for the delicate mission, and the one upon whose judgment the most reliance was placed, was Lolali's cousin, Kalamakua, a noble of high rank, whose lands were on the coast of the Uwa district. He was bold, dashing, and adventurous, and readily consented to assist in finding a wife for his royal and romantic relative. Lolali was at Waialua when the messengers embarked. He took an encouraging interest in the expedition, and when banteringly asked by his cousin if age would be any objection in a bride of unexceptional birth, replied that he had promised to take a wife solely to please his royal brother, and any age under eighty would answer. But he did not mean it. Not so, replied Pillowali, more than half in earnest. I will not become the uncle of a family of monsters. The bride must be as worthy in person as in blood. Do you hear, Kalamakua, said Lolali, addressing his cousin, who was standing beside the canoe, ready for departure. Do you hear the words of Pillowali? She must be not only young, but beautiful. If you bring or give promise to any other, she shall not live at Lahue. Do not fear, replied the cousin gaily, whomsoever she may be, we will keep her in the family, 
for if you refuse her, or she you, I will marry her myself. Fairly spoken, exclaimed the king, and I will see that he keeps his promise, Lolali. Although the object of the voyage was known to but few, hundreds gathered at the beach to witness the departure, for the canoe was decorated, and the embarking chiefs appeared in feather capes and other ornaments of their rank. Turning to the high priest who was present, Pilawale asked him if he had observed the auguries. I have, replied the priest, they are more than favorable. Then turning his face northward, he continued, there is peace in the clouds, and the listless winging of yonder bird betokens favoring winds. Amid a course of alohas, the canoe dashed through the breakers and out into the open sea, holding a course in the direction of Molokai. Reaching that island early the next day, the party landed at Kalaupapa. The Ali'i Mui received them well, but inquiry led to nothing satisfactory, and, proceeding around the island, the party next landed on Lanai. It is probable that they were driven there by unfavorable winds, as Lanai was a dependency of Maui at that time, and none but subject chiefs resided on the island. However, they remained there but one day, and the next proceeded to Hana, Maui, with the intention of crossing over to Hawaii and visiting the court of Kiha at Waipio. Inquiring for the Moi, they learned that Kua'u had removed his court from Lanhaina for the season to Hamakuapoko to enjoy the cool breezes of that locality and indulge in the pleasures of surf bathing. They were further informed that a large number of chiefs had accompanied the Moi to that attractive resort, and that Kalea, sister of the king, and the most beautiful woman on the island, as well as the most daring and accomplished surf swimmer, was also there as one of the greatest ornaments of the court. This was agreeable information, and the party re-embarked and arrived the next morning off Hamakuapoko, just as the fair Kalea and her attendants had gone down to the beach to indulge in a buffet with the surf. Swimming out beyond the breakers, and oblivious of everything but her own enjoyment, Kalea suddenly found herself within a few yards of the canoe of the Oahuan chiefs. Presuming that it contained her own people, she swam still closer when she discovered, to her amazement, that all the faces in the canoe were strange to her. Perceiving her embarrassment, Kalamakua rose to his feet, and addressing her in a courtly and respectful manner, invited her to a seat in the canoe, offering to ride the surf with it to the beach, an exciting and sometimes dangerous sport in which great skill and coolness are required. The language of the chief was so gentle and suggestive of the manners of the court that the invitation was accepted, and the canoe mounted one of the great waves successively following two of lighter bulk and force, and was adroitly and safely beached. The achievement was greeted with applause on the shore, and when the proposal was made to repeat the performance, Kilea willingly retained her seat. Again the canoe successfully rowed the breakers ashore, and then, through her attendants, Kalamakua discovered that the fair and dashing swimmer was none other than Kilea, the sister of the Moi of Maui. With increased respect, Kalamakua again invited his distinguished guests to join in the pleasure and excitement of a third ride over the breakers. She consented, and the canoe was once more pulled out beyond the surf, where it remained for a moment, awaiting a high, combining roller on which to be borne to the landing. One passed and was missed, and before another came a squall, or what was called a mumuku, suddenly struck the canoe, rendering it utterly unmanageable and driving it out upon the broad ocean. When the canoe started, Kalea would have leapt into the ocean had she not been restrained, but Kalamakua spoke so kindly to her, assuring her they would safely ride out the storm and return to Hamakuapoko, that she became calmer and consented to curl down beside him in the boat to escape the fury of the winds. 
Her shapely limbs and shoulders were bare, and her hair, braided and bound loosely back, was still wet, and grew chilling in the wind where it fell. Kalamakua took from a covered calabash a handsome kahei, or mantle, and wrapped it around her shoulders, and then seated her in the shelter of his own burly form. She smiled her thanks for these delicate attentions, and the chief was compelled to admit to himself that the reports of her great beauty had not been exaggerated. He could recall no maiden on Oahu who was equal in grace and comeliness, and felt that, could she be secured for his eccentric cousin, his search would be at an end. He even grew indignant at the thought that she might not prove acceptable, but smiled the next moment at his promise to marry the girl himself should she be refused by his cousin. But the fierce Mamuku afforded him but little time to indulge such dreams. The sea surged in a fury, and like a cockle shell, the canoe was tossed from one huge wave to another. The spray was almost blinding, and while Kalamakua kept the little craft squarely before the wind as a measure of first importance, his companions were earnestly employed in alternately bailing and trimming as emergency suggested. On, on sped the canoe, farther and farther out into the open sea, tossed like a feather by the crested waves and pelted by the driving spray. The scene was fearful. The southern skies had grown black with wrath, and long streamers sent from the clouds shot northward, as if to surround and cut off the retreat of the flying craft. All crouched in the bottom of the boat, intent only on keeping it before the wind and preventing it from filling. A frailer craft would have been stove to pieces, but it was hewn from the trunk of a sound koa tree, and gallantly rode out the storm. But when the wind ceased and the skies cleared late in the afternoon, the canoe was far out at sea and beyond the sight of land. It was turned and headed back, but as there was no wind to assist the paddles, and the waters were still rough and restless, slow progress toward land was made. And when the sun went down, Kalamakua was undecided which way to proceed, as he was not certain that the storm had not carried them so far from the coast of Maui that some point on Molokai or Oahu might be more speedily and safely reached than the place from which they started. Their supply of poi had been lost during the gale by the breaking of the vessel containing it, but they still had left a small quantity of dried fish, raw potatoes, and bananas, and a calabash of water, and ate their evening meal as cheerfully as if their supplies were exhaustless and the green hills of Waialua smiled upon them in the distance. Such was the Hawaiian of the past, such is the Hawaiian of today. His joys and griefs are centered in the present, and he broods but little over the past and borrows no trouble from the future. The stars came out, and a light wind began to steal down upon them from the northwest. It was quite chilly and felt like the breath of the returning trade winds, which start from the frozen shores of northwestern America, and gradually grow warmer as they sweep down through the tropic seas. These winds, continuing with intervals of cessation, eight or nine months in the year, are what give life, beauty, and an endurable climate to the Hawaiian group. As the breeze freshened, sails were raised, and then the course to be taken remained to be determined. Kalamakua expressed his doubts to Kalea, as if inviting a suggestion from her, but she was unable to offer any advice, declaring that she had not noticed the course of the wind that had driven them so far out upon the ocean. "'And I am equally in doubt,' said the chief. "'We may have been blown farther toward the rising of the sun than the headlands of Hana. If so, the course we are now sailing would take us to Hawaii, if not, indeed, beyond, while in following the evening star we might even pass Oahu.' I therefore suggest a course between these two directions, which will certainly bring us to land sometime tomorrow. Then, since we are all in doubt, replied Kalea, and the winds are blowing landward, why not trust to the gods and follow them? 
Your words are an inspiration, returned the chief, delighted that she had suggested a course that would enable him to make Oahu direct. For, as may be suspected, he was an accomplished navigator, and was really in little or no doubt concerning the direction of the several islands mentioned. You have spoken wisely, he continued, as if yielding entirely to her judgment. We will follow the winds that are now cooling the shores of Hamakuapoko. Thus adroitly was Kalea made a consenting party to her own abduction. Kalamakua took the helm, slightly changing the course of the canoe, and his companions made themselves comfortable for the evening. Their wet rolls of kappa had been dried during the afternoon, and there was room enough to spare to arrange a couch for Kalea in the bottom of the boat. But she was too much excited over the strange events of the day to sleep, or even attempt to rest, and therefore sat near Kalamakua in the stern of the canoe until past midnight, watching the stars and listening to the story, with which he knew she must sooner or later become acquainted, of his romantic expedition in search of a wife for his cousin. It is needless to say that Kaleo was surprised and interested in the relation, and when Kalamakua referred to the high rank of his cousin, to his handsome person and large estates at Lahu, and begged her to regard with favor the proposal of marriage which he then made to her in behalf of Lolali, she frankly replied that if her royal brother did not object, she would give the proffer consideration. As Kalamakua had concluded not to take the hazard of securing the consent of her brother, who doubtless had some other matrimonial project in view for her, he construed her answer into a modestly expressed willingness to become the wife of Lolali, and the more resolutely bent his course toward Oahu. He watched the Pleiades, the great guide of the early Polynesian navigators, as they swept up into the heavens, and, bearing still farther to the northward to escape Molokai, announced that he would keep the steering oar for the night, and advised his companions, now that the breeze was steady and the sea smoother, to betake themselves to rest. And Kalea at last curled down upon her couch of kappa, and Kalamakua was left alone with his spots to watch the wind and stars. Although a long and steady run had been made during the night, no land was visible the next morning. Kalea scanned the horizon uneasily, and without speaking, looked at Kalamakua for an explanation. "'Before the sun goes down, we shall see land,' said the chief. "'What land?' inquired Kalea. "'Wahoo,' was the reply, but the chief was not greeted with the look of surprise expected. "'I am not disappointed,' returned the princess quite indifferently. "'You seem to have been sailing by the wandering stars last night, "'for before daylight I looked up and saw by cow "'that your course was directly toward the place of sunset.' Five of the planets, Mercury, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn, were known to the ancient Hawaiians and designated as Nahoku-eia, or wandering stars. The fixed stars were also grouped by them into constellations, and Kau was their name for Antares. With a look of genuine surprise, Kalamakua replied, I did not know before that so correct a knowledge of navigation was among the many accomplishments of the sister of Kawal. It required no great knowledge of the skies to discover last night that we were not bearing southward, and needs still less now to observe that we are sailing directly west, Kalea quietly remarked. I will not attempt to deceive one who seems to be able to instruct me in journeying over the blue waters, said Kalamakua politely. Your judgment is correct. We are sailing nearly westward, and the first land sighted will probably be the headlands of Kaawa. You have acted treacherously resumed the princess after a pause, as if suddenly struck with the propriety of protesting against the abduction. Possibly, was the brief reply. Yes, she continued after another pause, you have acted treacherously, and my brother will make war upon Oahu unless I am immediately returned to Hamakuapoko. He will find work for his spears, 
was the irritating response. Is it a habit with the chiefs of Oahu to steal their wives? inquired Kalea tauntingly. No, Kalamakua promptly replied, but I would not eat from the same calabash with the chief who would throw back into the face of the generous winds the gift of the rarest flower that ever blossomed on Hawaiian soil. The pretty compliment of the chief moved Kalea to silence, yet he observed that there was a sparkle of pleasure in her eyes, and that the novelty and romance of the situation were not altogether distasteful to her. Land was sighted late in the afternoon. It was Kaoio Point, on the western side of Oahu. Rounding it, they landed at Mahana, where they procured food and water and passed the night, and the next day had an easy voyage to Waialua. Landing, Kalamakua at once communicated with Pilawali, giving the high rank of Kalea, as well as the strange circumstances under which she had been brought to Waialua. Queen Paakanalea promptly dispatched attendants to the beach with appropriate apparel, and in due time the distinguished visitor was received at the royal mansion in a manner consistent with her rank. The next day a message brought Lolali from Lahu. He was dressed in his richest trappings and brought with him, as an offering to Kalea, a rare necklace of shells and curiously carved mother of pearl. He was conducted to the princess by Kalamakua. They seemed to be mutually pleased with each other. In fact, Lolali was completely charmed by the fair stranger, and in his enthusiasm offered to divide his estates with his cousin as an evidence of his gratitude. Kalamakua had himself become very much interested in Kalea, and secretly hoped that his cousin might find something in her blood or bearing to object to, in which case he felt that she might be induced to regard his own suit with favor. But Lolali declared her to be a model of perfection, and wooed her with so much earnestness that she finally consented to become his wife without waiting to hear from her brother. Her rank was quite equal to that of Lolali, and the king was so greatly pleased with the union that he added considerably to the estates of his brother at Lahu, and the nuptials were celebrated with games, feasting, dancing, and the commencement of a new heiau near Waialua, which was in time completed and dedicated to Lono, with a large image of La'a Momaumau, the Hawaiian Aeolus, at the inner entrance, in poetic commemoration of the winds that drove Kalea away from the coast of Maui. At the conclusion of the festivities at Waialua, Kalea was borne all the way to Lahu in a richly mounted manele, or native palaquin with four bearers. There were 300 attendants in her train, exclusive of 36 chiefs as a guard of honor, wearing feather capes and helmets, and armed with javelins festooned with lays of flowers and tinted feathers. It was a right royal procession, and its entrance into Lahu was the beginning of another round of festivities continuing for many days. Portions of the melee recited by Lolali in welcome of his wife to Lahu are still remembered and repeated, and the occasion was a popular theme of song and comment for a generation or more among the people of that district. And thus, Kalea, the beautiful sister of the Moi of Maui, became the wife of Lolali, brother of Pilawali, king of Oahu. 2. It is now in order to return to Hamakuapoko, to note what transpired there on the sudden disappearance of Kalea before the strong breath of the Mumuku. The king was profoundly grieved and summoned the attendants of his sister to learn the particulars of the misfortune. To all of them it was manifest that the canoe had been blown out to sea in spite of the efforts of its occupants, and, as the gale continued to increase in violence during the day, it was feared that the entire party had perished. As to the strangers, no one seemed to know anything of them or of the island from which they came. They did not seem to belong to the Maka'anana, or common people, and one of them, it was believed from his bearing, was a high chief. 
This was all of the information the whaling attendants were able to give. One man, who had noticed the canoe as it came and went through the surf, thought it was from Hawaii, while another was equally certain that it was from Oahu. But as the general structure of canoes on the several islands of the group differed but little, their descriptions of the craft furnished no real clue to the mystery. With the cessation of the storm late in the afternoon came a hope to Kawao that the missing canoe had safely ridden out the gale and would seek the nearest land favored by the changing winds. He therefore summoned the high priest and instructed him to put his diviners and magicians to the task of discovering what had become of the princess Kalea. Pigs and fowls were slain, prayers were said in the Heiau, and late in the evening information came through supernatural agencies that Kalea was still living. But this was not satisfactory to the king. He demanded something more specific, and a kula of great sanctity was prepared and placed in the Anu, a wicker enclosure within the inner court, and in due time, in answer to the questions of the high priest, announced that the canoe containing the princess was sailing in safety toward Oahu. The words of the kula were repeated to the king, and the next day he dispatched a well-manned canoe in charge of one of his plumed halumanus, or military aides, to find and bring back the lost Kalia. Owing to unfavorable winds or bad management, the canoe did not reach Makapu'u Point, Oahu, until the fourth day. Proceeding along the northeastern coast of the island and landing wherever practicable to make inquiries, the easygoing messenger did not arrive at Waialua until two days after the departure of Kalea for Lahu. Learning that the princess had become the wife of Lolali, the disappointed Halumanu did not deem it necessary to communicate with her, but briefly paid his respects to the king, to whom he made known the nature of his errand to Oahu, and his resolution to return at once to Maui and acquaint his royal master with the result of his mission. Appreciating that, in his anxiety to see his brother properly mated, he had countenanced a proceeding sufficiently discourteous to the moi of Maui to warrant a hostile response, Pilawali treated the Halumanu with marked kindness and consideration, and insisted upon sending an escort with him back to Maui, including the bearer of a friendly explanatory message from himself to Kawao. For this delicate service no one could be found so competent as the courtly Kalamakua, who was well versed in the genealogy of the Kolona family, and would be able to satisfactorily, if not quite truthfully, explain why it was that the canoe containing the princess, when driven out to sea, was headed for Oahu instead of Maui when the storm abated. Kalamakua was accordingly dispatched on the mission. Being a much better sailor than the Halamanu, he found no difficulty either in parting company with him off the coast of eastern Maui, or in reaching Hamakuapoko three or four hours in advance of the party he was courteously escorting thither. This enabled the wily Oahuan to secure an audience with the king and deliver his message and explanation in full before the Halumanu could land and give his version of the story. Kalamakua's explanation of the impossibility after the storm of reaching in safety any land other than Oahu or Molokai seemed to be satisfactory, and when he dwelt upon the well-known high rank of Lolali, as recognized by the Aha'ali, and referred to his manly bearing, his amiable disposition, and the amplitude of his estates, Kawao answered sadly, Then so let it be. It is perhaps the will of the gods. I would have had it otherwise, but be to Kilea and her husband, and to my royal brother, the king of Oahu, my messenger of peace. Thanking the Moai for his kindly words, Kalamakua took his leave. As he was about to re-embark in the afternoon for Oahu, the discomfited Halumanu, having but just then landed, passed him on the beach. Knowing that he had been outwitted, in his wrath he reached for the handle of his knife, but he did not draw it. Kalamakua stopped and promptly answered the challenge, but the Halamanu passed on, 
With a smile, he stepped into his canoe, and a few minutes later was on his way to Oahu with Kawa'u's welcome messages of peace. As the years came and went in their quiet home at Lahu, Lulali lost none of his affection for Kalea. No wars distracted the group. Laloa, the son of Kiha and father of Umi, had become the peaceful sovereign of Hawaii. Kahakuma, the ancestor of some of the most distinguished families of the island, held gentle and intelligent sway in Kauai. Kauau still ruled in Maui and Pilawali in Oahu. To gratify his wife, Lolali surrounded her with every comfort. The choicest fruits of the island were at her command, and every day fresh fish and other delicacies of the sea were brought to her from the neighboring coasts. In short, everything not taboo to the sex was provided without stint. Summer houses were constructed for her in the cool recesses of the Wanene Mountains, and a manele with relays of stout bearers was always at her service for the briefest journeys. The people of the district were proud of her rank and beauty, and at seasons of hukupu, or gift-making, she was fairly deluged with rare and valuable offerings. Yet with all this affluence of comfort and affection, Kalea became more and more restless and unhappy. Nor did the presence of her children, of whom she had three, seem to render her more contented. She longed for the sea, for the bounding surf which had been the sport of her girlhood, for the white-maned steeds of the ocean, which she had so often mounted and fearlessly ridden to the shore for the thunder of the breakers against the cliffs, for the murmur of the reef-bound wavelets timidly crawling up the beach to kiss and cool her feet. And the more she yearned for her old-time pleasures, the greater became her dissatisfaction with the tamer life and surroundings of Lahu. Knowing her love for the sea, Lolali made occasional excursions with her to the coast, frequently remaining there for days together. Sometimes they visited the east and sometimes the south side of the island, but the place which seemed to please her above all others was Ewa, where Kalamakua made his home. He too loved the sea, and during her visits there afforded her every opportunity to indulge her passion for it. Together they had charming sails around the Pualoa, Pearl River, Lagoon, and gallant rides over the surf at the entrance. There and there only did she seem to recover her spirits. There only did she seem to be happy. This did not escape the notice of Lolali, and a great grief filled his heart as he sometimes thought, in noticing her brightened look in the presence of Kalamakua, that it was less the charms of the surf than of his cousin's handsome face that made the waters of Ewa so attractive to Kalea. Life at Luhu finally became so irksome to her, and even the continued kindness of Lolali so unwelcome, that she announced her determination to leave the home of her husband forever. This resolution was not altogether unexpected by Lolali, for he had not been blind to her growing restlessness and was prepared for the worst, and as the prerogatives of her high rank gave her the undoubted privilege of separation if she desired it, he reluctantly consented to the divorcement. When asked where it was her purpose to go, she answered, Probably to Maui to rejoin my brother. Probably not beyond Ewa was Lolali's significant reply. But, no matter where you may go, he continued with dignity, take your departure from Lahue in a manner consistent with your rank. You were received here as became the sister of a king and the wife of the son of Kalonaiki. So would I have you depart. I reproach you with nothing, myself with nothing, therefore let us part in peace. We part in peace was Kalea's only answer, and the next morning she quietly took her departure with four or five attendants. A chant expressive of Lolali's grief at the separation was long after recited, but these lines are all of it that have been preserved. Farewell, my partner, on the lowland plains, on the waters of Pahukeo, above Kenhoa, on the dark mountain spur of Mauna Una. O oh, Lahue, she is gone. 
Sniff the sweet scent of the grass, the sweet scent of the wild vines that are twisted by Waikoloa, by the winds of Waiapua, my flower. As if a mote were in my eye, the pupil of my eye is troubled. Dimness covers my eyes. Woe is me. Leaving Lahue, Kalea descended to Ewa, and skirting the head of the lagoon by way of Halawa, on the afternoon of the second day arrived at the entrance immediately opposite Pualoa. There she found a large number of nobles and retainers of Kalamakua, the high chief of the district, amusing themselves in the surf. As she had not seen the salt water for some months, Kalea could not resist the temptation to indulge in her old pastime, and, borrowing a surfboard from one of the bathers, plunged into the sea and soon joined the party of surf riders beyond the breakers. Soon a huge roller made its appearance, and all mounted it and started for the shore. The race was exciting for the most expert swimmers in the district were among the contestants. But in grace, daring, and skill, Kalea very plainly excelled them all, and was loudly cheered as she touched the shore. Kalamakua was reposing in the shade not far away, and hearing the tumult of voices inquired the cause. He was told that a beautiful woman from Lahue had beaten all the chiefs at surf riding, and the people could not restrain their enthusiasm. Satisfied that there was but one Lahue woman who could perform such a feat, and that she must be Kalea, the wife of his cousin Lolali, he proceeded to the beach just as a second trial had resulted in a triumph to the fair contestant quite as emphatic as the first. As she touched the shore, Kalamakua threw his kehi, mantle, over his shoulders and respectfully greeted her. Kalea then informed him that she had formally separated from her husband and was about to embark for Maui. If that is the case, said Kalamakua, gently taking her by the arm as if to restrain her, you will go no farther than Yua. When I went in search of a wife for Lolali, I promised that if he objected to the woman I brought or recommended, or she to him, I would take her myself if she so willed. You have objected to him. Is Kalamakua better to your liking? I will remain at Yua, was the satisfactory answer. Yes, and you should have gone there, instead of Lahue, when you landed at Wailua years ago, continued Kalamakua earnestly. My thought is the same, was Kalea's frank avowal, and she beckoned to her attendants and told Kalamakua that she was ready to follow him. Did he expect her at the beach that morning? Tradition offers no direct answer to the question, but significantly mentions that Kalamakua spent one or two days at Lahue not long before, that houses were in readiness for her at Yua, and that she was borne thither on a manele, escorted by the principal chiefs and nobles of the district. Learning, not long after, that Kalea had become the wife of Kalamakua, the gentle-hearted Lolali sent to her a present of fruits and a message of peace and forgiveness. But it was his request that they might never meet again, and he spent the remainder of his days in Lahue, caring for the welfare of his people, and dreaming in the shadows of the hills of Kala. But little more need here be told. Kalea and Kalamakua lived happily together, and were blessed with a daughter, Lelohilohi, who inherited her mother's beauty and became the wife of her cousin Pi'ilani, son and successor of Kawa'u, Moi of Maui. But it was not until after the betrothal of the cousins, which was agreed to in their childhood, that Kawa'u fully forgave his volatile sister for marrying a prince of Oahu without his consent. Pi'ikia, one of the daughters of Pi'ilani and Lelohilohi, became in after time the wife of the great Umi of Hawaii, and through her great-grandson, I, the ancestress of Kalakua, the present sovereign of the group. Lono Api'i, another one of their children, succeeded his father as Moi of Maui. As a further example of the manner in which the blood of the reigning families of the several islands of the group was commingled in the early periods of their history, 
it may be mentioned that Koholi, a son of Lolali and Kalea, was united in marriage to Kohipa, one of the two daughters of Pilawali, while the other, Kukanaloko, who followed her father as sovereign of Oahu, became the wife of Luia, grandson of Kakalaneo, the joint ruler of Maui, during the reign of the unfortunate Kake. Black Clock Audio Tales is edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer in Badger's Drift Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can contact us at pgttcm.com, on Facebook at Black Clock Audio Tales, and just look for us, Black Clock Audio Tales. Thank you.